Hello and welcome to the Drug Policy Voices podcast. This is an ESRC-funded research project which aims to engage people who use drugs into debates about drug policy. Each month we'll speak about the findings of our research, discuss the hot topics connected to drug use and drug policy, and talk about the ways in which you can participate in our research. Our vision is to educate, inform and amplify your voices. To find out more information about us, including research ethics, privacy statements and where to go for advice and support, you can visit our website at www.drugpolicyvoices.co.uk. Hello listeners and welcome to episode 10. This is the final episode in the current series. I spoke to the research team at the Global Drug Survey, who are celebrating their 10-year anniversary and the 2022 survey launch. The GDS is an annual survey that's translated into 10 languages. It collects data on global drug trends and uses this information to provide harm reduction advice. This year, the survey has a particular drug policy focus, as well as asking questions on sex and drugs, cannabis and tobacco, and low alcohol products. First up, I speak to Professor Adam Winstock, who is the founder and director of the GDS. Welcome to Professor Adam Winstock. Delighted to have you on the podcast uh, today. First and foremost, I want to say happy 10 years to the Global Drug Survey. Happy uh, anniversary. Happy birthday. Um, Thank you. Thank you. So first of all, Adam, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and your academic background? Uh, So I'm I'm a psychiatrist and addiction medicine specialist. Um, I trained in London as a proper doctor once upon a time and then I was a ship's doctor, then I was a psychiatrist, and then um, I kind of specialized in drugs and alcohol. Uh, I was in Australia for 10 years, um, which was wonderful. Um, and then I came back um, to the UK. And I guess I've spent most of my academic life either looking at things that are completely relevant to my day-to-day life, which is opiate dependence, alcohol withdrawal, patient education and harm reduction, and then the other half of my life, which is related to the majority of people who use drugs who never develop severe problems. And that's kind of where the Mixed Mag and Global Drug Surveys come into, which was me wanting to do something useful for those people who like taking drugs, but just hasn't ruined their life. And it's how can we help people use drugs and alcohol more safely so they can get on with everything else they enjoy doing. What prompted you to start the Global Drug Survey? So, so it kind of grew out of the Mixed Mag Drug Survey, which I first ran in 1999. And I think that was kind of partly on the back of having gone to medical school in the late 80s, lots of my friends being into kind of dancing and being DJs and, you know, coming up to me going, Ad, we're all doing this drug called MGMA. What do you know about it? And it's like, not very much. And they went, don't you think you should go and find out? And it was just kind of that realisation that, Lots of people use drugs and alcohol without ever kind of developing dependence and and seeking problems. And I spent my life working with this very small group of people for whom drugs have become a massive problem. But that wasn't the experience of most people. But nobody was interested in them. They were only interested in them when they turned up to the A&E department or they committed crime. And it's like that just seemed to be kind of a huge gap. And, And just talking to people, it's like if you can flag problems early, if you can give people advice that lets them stay out of trouble while still enjoying their substance use, people are really interested in that. Mm. And the most important lesson I learned was that the most credible source of information for people who use drugs 
are not drug experts. There are other people who use drugs. And I guess what Global Drug Survey has tried to do is bring together the peer experiences of hundreds of thousands of people and share that with other people who use drugs. Say, look, here's 100,000 people who like taking MGMA. This is what they do to keep themselves safe. So why don't you maybe kind of do what they do? Mm. And most people do use drugs pretty safely. And, and like leading on to that then, what about the uh, the drugs meter? Could you explain a bit more about that? Also, the, the, the drugs meter, which I think we probably developed eight or nine years ago, was just realising that most people don't change their behaviour kind of for three reasons. So the first is that we all overestimate our personal invulnerability to harm. So, yeah, of course I smoke, but my Aunt Dorothy lived to 165. My genes are amazing or, you know, I have unprotected sex, but I've got an amazing immune system. And if you overestimate your invulnerability to harm, you don't put things in place to protect yourself. Mm. So the drugs meter was thinking, well, how can we challenge people's perception that they're safer than everyone else? And it also challenges the idea that most harm reduction messages are for the masses. And most people look at them and go, yeah, 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 but that's not relevant to me. So we wanted to personalise it. The second thing that stops us changing our behaviour is we go, oh, I, I do coke on a Friday and Saturday, but so do all my mates. I mean, I'm just like everyone else. So when it suits us, we look to our immediate peer group and go, well, I'm just like everyone else, therefore it's fine. The mm. fact that your mates who are doing a gram of coke on a Friday and Saturday mean that you and your mates are in the top 5% of cocaine users in the UK is a bit of a wake-up call. So the drug sector wanted to provide comparative feedback so people would see that they were maybe heavier than other users. And the final thing is that people don't necessarily change their behaviour because they quite like taking drugs. And we went, all right, well, we'll accept that and go, you can still take drugs and enjoy it. You can just do it a bit more safely. And we also wanted to break down the stigma and shame about people talking about things that were illegal. And so the drugs meter and the drinks meter simply allow you to put in how much you're using, how much you're spending, and then we'll, we'll tell you how you compare to hundreds of thousands of other people. And then we'll give you a bit of advice on how you might make your use a bit safer. So it was, yeah, it was just giving people an anonymous, confidential space to think about their drug use and hopefully walk away with a couple of practical tips about how to make things safer and more fun. Next up, I spoke to Dr. Monica Barrett, of MRIT in Melbourne, Australia, and Dr. Jason Ferris, Associate Professor, University of Queensland. Both Monica and Jason have about 20 years experience working in this field. Monica has extensive experience looking at darknet markets, as well as things such as harm reduction at festivals. And Jason is a substance use epidemiologist and chief biostatistician on the GDS. Monica and Jason are part of the core research team. I spoke to them about their involvement in GDS and the key findings and impact of collecting this data over the past 10 years. So I guess the bits of the GDS that have taken most of my attention have been, yeah, the the darknet markets part of it. And then I guess sourcing more generally, like where people get their drugs more generally, um, which it sits, sits within every module that we ask about specific drugs. We go through, you know, sort of the main illegal drugs, I guess, as well as alcohol, uh, asking various questions. And so price, um, where people get 
stuff and, and how that intersects has been of interest. But originally, yeah, we put together a module on Silk Road when there was really only Silk Road back in sort of um, 2012, 2013. Uh, and then that evolved into a broader discussion about Darknet. So what that's meant has been that we can look at, you know, what's how that's evolved over time from a survey perspective from people's self-report as well as one can obviously look at the, the darknet markets themselves and see how they've they've worked got a, a young younger friend of mine um liam who is a mescaline cactus expert you know he knows everything there is to know about cactus and so i figured that was a really good opportunity to have a module about about mescalines and as monica pointed out we've had lots of new people coming in have a guy over at um, uh, University of Color, uh, San Diego um, who last round uh, brought in a number of questions about in-house smoking for cannabis. Now that cannabis across the US is sort of uh, quite heavily um, uh, either decriminalized or legalized and recreationally used, um, there's been a change in how cannabis smoking is happening indoors, right? So once upon a time, you'd sort of go somewhere and hide. How does it work now with secondhand and thirdhand smoke? So this used to be a whole lot of thought processes around tobacco, you know, exposure to kids, leaching from the paint. Well, cannabis indoors has some of the same problems with, with all the combustibles. So these guys were really interested, and GDS was a perfect platform for getting world population of people who smoke cannabis and then understanding how they do it in their environment uh, based on what goes on for their laws and their policies that sit behind it. One of the other ones that's been a favourite of mine and Adam's is around the nitrous oxide. So we were collecting nitrous oxide data, I want to say way before lots of other people were looking at it, but we had 15,000 people in 2015 across three years of looking at their nitrous oxide use. And that led to an opportunity which hasn't been done before of looking at dose response harms um, that people talk about saying, how much nitrous can you do before you're having these unintended consequences? And we talk about B12 depletion and myelineuropathy and all these other consequences that there hasn't been a volume of data to speak to that. And one of the things with the GDS is we'll be able to do this with 15,000 people and have these really beautiful dose curves for harm for people who have these negative experiences from too much nitrous. The other little one, and Monica might remember this, in 2015, 2016, GDS was highlighting that cocaine was coming, right? The resurgence yeah. across the globe of cocaine. And I remember talking at an ABSAD conference at one of the conference discussions, how we're seeing this bigger trend of use and decreasing price. And this was especially in Australia with the offset of methamphetamine being the surge and the scourge of society at the moment. And I was saying, watch this space, cocaine is going to come back and the prices are dropping, the purity is increasing, and people will adopt the drug, drug of choice with something that they think might be less harmful. And it's something that has now played out, you know. So G GDS is... Um, a window, not just what we've done in the last 12 months, that's usually where we catch it, but a window with what is changing in what we're doing tomorrow. Um, and it's fascinating that way. I think being able to, um, to look at new trends more quickly than most surveys, I think that is something that, that we feel we can do. One of the lovely things about GDS is its global positioning, right? 
So we have people across the globe in 10 different languages who all get who all answer to the same question. And so we have a sense of this global um, change and behavior and response and also how countries influence, you know, um, where other surveys often become very centric and if not just written in English. Behind Global Drug Survey is to really have sans frontiers type idea. There's no barriers going on or stop who can answer. Um, and, you know, every year we have, we try to find more international partners to work with, not just from a research perspective, but also to release the GDS into different countries. Next up is Dr. Emma Davis, who's a senior lecturer in psychology at Oxford Brookes University. She's also part of the core research team and focuses mainly on alcohol. I spoke to her about previous findings and the impact that they've had, as well as the section on low alcohol products that's in this year's survey. A couple of things that I found particularly interesting. Um, So in terms of when we were asking people about their preferred sources of support, if they wanted to reduce their alcohol consumption, I think that that's really interesting because often we see that people are really in a rush to develop digital interventions for everything these days aren't they there's an app for it isn't there if you've got a problem we'll develop an app but when we've explored what um sources of support that respondents to the global drug survey wanted to um help them cut down with we found that people that were drinking at higher levels who had co-occurring mental health conditions firmly preferred face-to-face methods of support and i think that's a really important finding in terms of its implications for funding services for people who are at risk of dependence we shouldn't just be saying oh yes just get another app we should be firmly fighting to make sure that treatment services are really well funded so that's one thing another thing that we've looked at is people's responses to alcohol health warning labels so there's been a bit of a resurgence in that research area recently which I think is a good thing and with GDS we did a big study a couple of years ago we presented people with a number of different health warning labels the striking thing there was that not um, so many people were aware of the links between alcohol and cancer, but that a label containing that information was the one in our study that was the most likely to lead people to think about reducing their drinking. So it just really highlights that new information is really important for people and that they do have a right to kind of know the different health risks. And then they can make a decision about about their drinking that's informed. Um, And I suppose another study that's quite interesting is where we've looked at people different levels of intoxication so we've asked people ideally to kind of feel as drunk as you'd like to be or to get that buzz that kind of sweet spot of intoxication how much they'd like to drink and a large proportion of our GDS respondents were saying that they needed to drink an amount of alcohol in a single serving and that kind of exists far exceeds the low risk drinking guidelines in their context so it just really shows again kind of I guess what we already know but there's a massive disconnect between health advice especially around drinking guidelines and people's actual lived experience and I think it's important that we can shine a light on those things. I suppose just briefly, I'm also really proud of the work that um, Dean Connolly has been leading, looking at patterns of alcohol and other drug use in um, trans and non-binary respondents. I think GDS have played a really good role there in kind of, you know, contributing to areas of the literature that just aren't really as well represented. What are you working on this year then? 
Okay, so for this year's Global Drug Survey in the alcohol section, we're actually interested in asking people about their experiences of drinking low strength and no alcohol products. So it's almost like we're turning things on their head a bit in the alcohol section. And we're interested really in understanding people's experiences of using low and no alcohol products. So we're talking about products that are 1.2% volume or, or less really. And they seem to be growing in the market recently. So there's been an explosion of kind of alcohol-free beers or alcohol-free spirits and wines or de-alcoholized products as well. And it just seems really interesting to us in terms of whether this is a really good thing in terms of whether it can help us to moderate our consumption or drink a bit less when we do go out or cut down altogether for some people. Or is it perhaps a kind of marketing ploy by the alcohol industry to get us to associate their products or their brands, anyway, their brand names with a, a wider range of different contexts and scenarios? So we just want to know what people think, really. There's not that much research in this area already. And we want to know whether people have tried these products, in what context they've been drinking them. So, for example, are they drinking them when they're going out for a meal or to a club or are they drinking them at home? Who are they drinking? them with and also what their perceptions of those products are so whether they think they help them to drink less or whether they um, think that they taste nice all sorts of things really it's really exploratory and it'll be really interesting to see what people think but also it'd be interesting to see what the differences are between respondents from different parts of the world as well because we know for example in the UK there's lots of choices in terms of these types of products but talking to some colleagues over in the states there's sort of less of availability and maybe different perceptions there so I think it will give us a nice opportunity to open up a research area where we just don't know very much really and maybe it will be the case that you know there's some some good things about these products um, in terms of helping people moderate um, but maybe we'll also find out you know what, what people's motivations are for kind of engaging with them. Why would you like people to take part? I think it's really important that people take part in the survey this year. It's our 10th birthday, which marks a significant milestone in terms of the data we've collected. I've always been keen on using that data to make drug use safer, regardless of the legal status of the drug. And sometimes people do ignore alcohol as a drug. And, you know, perhaps I've got the responsibility for the least sexy part of the survey. <laughs> but it is one of the drugs that we use most commonly all the way around the world. And it's also the one that's results in the most harm in terms of um, all tranches of the population. So we really encourage people to take part and to help us kind of fulfill that mission of harm reduction. And all of that data is really valuable. And everything we do with that data is designed to kind of help people to just, you know, not suffer those consequences and just be a bit healthier overall. Amazing. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Um, and yes, look forward to uh, the survey findings as they come in. Thank you. Thank you. Next, I speak to Dr. Larissa Mayer, who's been involved in the GDS over a number of years, looking at things such as MDMA and ecstasy use and harm reduction. I spoke to her about the things that she's looking forward to this year. Yeah, of course, I think it's worth highlighting involvement in psychedelic science because we're recording a lot of data um, on psychedelic use. We also asked people in 2020 in a special session a section um, whether they were um, using psychedelics for self-treatment. And then, of course, we have a big portion on microdosing. And this year, we are also not just looking into microdosing with LSD and psilocybin, but other substances and 
um, the data that we will release on GDS 2021 will also give us some insights there. And I think this is of particular importance because we see that psychedelics are the way out of medicinalization of society, but at the same time, there are big investments currently in there, um, getting out new substances and new patents just to use it as another prescription drug. And there we're really interested in seeing how people can use um, psychedelics responsibly, maybe on their own or in community, uh, to have more information there to also hopefully um, help to further regulate issues or maybe regulate less because people are very well aware what to do themselves. Now I speak to Alex Aldridge, who's a PhD student at Royal Holloway, University of London. Her research is about experiences of sex on drugs. She speaks about her previous involvement in the GDS and what she's working on this year. So, um, yeah, I've been involved with them for, for a few years now. Um, and the first time we did anything about sex on drugs was in 2013. Um, and that, that's when we asked how different drugs affected like various aspects of sex. So um, that was things like orgasm, duration, intensity. Um, emotional connection, um, ability to maintain an erection, like all those kinds of things. And um, I think like our, our key finding from that year was just kind of working out what drugs people actually have sex on. Um, and it was interesting that it was kind of the same across genders and sexualities. So, um, so the three most common drugs were um, alcohol, cannabis, and then MDMA. Um, and this was the same for all groups. So it was kind of just reflected what the most popular drugs were in general were also the most common ones people had sex on, which made sense. Um, and then the fourth, fourth most common drug, that's where it was kind of different for people, for um, everyone except for gay men. So, you know, uh, it was cocaine, but for gay men, it was poppers. And then we also found that one of one of the most, like, consistently highly rated drugs for sex was um, GHB or GBL, um, which we thought was really interesting because GHB gets, like, a lot of bad press. You know, it's referred to as a date rape drug. It's associated with drink spiking. And it's associated with chemsex as well. So, you know, it's often referred to in newspapers as, like, a gay sex drug kind of thing, mm -hmm. like, as if straight people aren't using it for sex, which obviously we found that they are. But yeah, so so an important thing I think our findings showed is that people were also having positive or like pleasurable experiences having sex on GHB. So that's something uh, we should be aware of because it's just more complicated than saying, oh, this drug is really bad. Like everyone needs to stay away from it. Um, like we also should take the good experiences seriously as well. And then, then in 2019, um, we took a different focus. We looked at people's experiences of um, being taken advantage of sexually while on drugs. And just as like a little bit of a side note, um, we chose that wording that taken advantage of sexually because it was the same as the 2013 survey. Yeah. Um, the, the, we use that same language. Um, so we wanted to be able to compare. Um, yeah, our findings from that bit were really interesting. So um, we'd ask questions like, um, you know, where were you when it happened? Like what drug or drugs had you taken? did you have friends around like how did you know the person who took advantage of you like if indeed you knew them at all and what we found was useful because it it just kind of challenged those common like you know narratives I guess we encounter about how people should keep themselves safe uh, when they're on nights out so you know even just the idea that it's like outside where you're unsafe because yeah. the implication then is that being home is is safe for you but actually we found that most of the incidents of being taken advantage of 
um, took place in like private houses, mm-hmm. not nightclubs and not on the street. Um, and similarly, like the idea that some randomer is going to put something um, in your drink. We found that like most people already knew the person in some capacity, you know, whether they were close friends or acquaintances. And we also found that they usually had friends nearby and stuff like that as well. Yeah. And then the very last thing uh, that I found interesting was that of the people who said they had been taken advantage of sexually, I think it was around a quarter also said that they had given their consent. So I think that was interesting because it shows that even if you do give consent or, you know, even if you consented, it doesn't mean the experience that follows is like going to be a good one or a positive one. And, you know, you can consent and still feel taken advantage of. And there's also the thing, well, maybe they didn't feel their consent counted because they were on drugs or, you know, there's so many ways you can interpret that as well. Yeah, it's really complex when it comes to consent, isn't it? And and it's mm-hmm. I'm something that I'm glad that you and others are kind of looking into because it's it's very important to get those messages out there. Moving on to this year, how is it different? What are you doing this year? Yeah, so this year we've got like two modules that are like relevant to sex on drugs. The first is about like sex on psychedelic drugs in particular. Mm. So, you know, things like acid or mushrooms or mescaline or 2CP. I think there's yeah, so we're so we're interested again, like like back in 2013, um, how psychedelics affect the sexual experience. So we've got things I think like arousal and pleasure and communication. Um and then beyond that. Uh, we're interested in like people's relationships with their own sexualities so like psychedelic experiences obviously they're all going to be so different so I don't want to like generalize about them but I think a common thing people talk about is um, how it affects like their sense of self and like the extent to which they feel like you know like an individual distinct from the rest of the world that it's interesting like how like us how bound up our senses of self are in like gender and sexuality categories you know whether that's like man or woman or non-binary or gay or straight or bisexual or whatever yeah what we're doing is asking people this year in the GDS um if they've ever had a psychedelic experience that's like impacted their thinking about their gender or their sexuality um and try and like dig into that a little bit more and then yeah the last thing about that section is you know, psychedelics are obviously like really having a moment in terms of like their therapeutic potential as well. So we're asking how um, how psychedelics might have impacted people who are maybe experiencing some kind of sexual trauma. And yeah, so we kind of see if there's anything going on there. Uh, how do you think the kind of findings of this year's uh, Global Drug Survey could help us understand the links between sex and drugs better? Yeah, well, I think it's really just just knowing more, you know, like how many people are out there having sex on psychedelics or you know getting more information about people's experiences of um being spiked because especially with that latter one like we're really reliant at the moment on like people's individual stories of it happening to them and you know it being really horrible and terrible and and those stories are like really powerful and it's like good we get to hear them but they don't necessarily tell us so much about like the bigger picture of what is happening you know because we've heard these things about the injecting but Mm. like how widespread is it and like if we're hearing these terrifying stories like you know people's lives are being shaped by this fear but like how much is that fear based on like a reality we just don't we don't know any of those kinds of things so Mm. I'm not saying it's not happening but like you know we don't we have no idea like about the scale or whether it's small or big or you know mm. if we're going to address it in a meaningful way we need to understand like the bigger picture as well as people's individual stories hopefully like feed into changes that like in like a nightlife culture as a whole and yeah and people's lives in general I guess yeah. 
Thank you so much, Alex. Uh, and please do uh, fill in the global drug survey if you have experiences that Alex has been talking about today. It's been fun. Thank you. <laughs> and finally, I speak to Judith Aldridge, a professor in criminology at the University of Manchester. Judith has decades of experience working within the field of drug use, drug markets and drug policy. She and I are leading on the drug policy module in this year's survey. Welcome, Judith. So wonderful to have you on the podcast. We're going to talk about our drug policy module in a bit more detail. So we've got a few sections to it, haven't we? Can you kind of explain why we've decided to take the approach that we have to do with the drug policy module and the different vignettes? Sure. Well, one of the things we found when we first began thinking about how we were going to ask people questions about their views about the available drug policy options is that it's really tricky to do that. It's hard to establish what people think. And the reason that it's difficult to do is that there isn't a consensus about what words like decriminalization or legalization or prohibition can entail. They can mean different things to different people and there's a lot of variation even within those categories. So just asking people what they think about those options doesn't really take you very far. Mm. And that's where we devised a method better at getting at what people think and we hope more interesting for the people completing the survey as well. Yeah, definitely. This is something that we found with uh, the drug policy voices research that often people don't understand those terms as well. And, and those that kind of terminology, you know, if you don't understand what legalisation or decriminalisation means, it can be quite off-putting. You, maybe you don't want to contribute. So, yeah, we've, we've done a different approach there. So we've got different drug policy options. People will be randomised, won't they? So we've got seven options overall and people will be randomised. So they'll, do, they'll see three and they'll be asked their opinions on it. Um, and whether they'd support that approach. But also we ask a number of questions as well, don't we? Uh, we ask them, do they think this will improve people's health? Do we, they think this will improve people's freedom, improve trust in government? All those kinds of questions to be able to get at uh, what might be driving a pre preference for one approach over another approach. Yes, definitely. And then we also um, we ask about a fictional drug, don't we? We ask people's opinions on that. Can you explain a bit more about that? Yes, we um, borrowed this, um, this fictional drug from some other researchers. The drug is called Rapsidol. And effectively, it's a lovely psychedelic drug, but it's designed to have no downsides to it. So we ask a series of questions related to that drug in, in light of the fact that it doesn't have any downsides. So we think that people will quite enjoy answering those questions as well. Definitely, because we know that some of the survey respondents um, have experience of, of uh, uh, illicit drug use and some haven't. Some are, have, have only had alcohol before or uh, smoked a cigarette, possibly. So this is a way of understanding um, why people would take a drug or why people wouldn't take a drug which is great. And then the final kind of section that we want to talk about is any impact of current law and current policy within their countries as well. So we ask about things such as police encounters, drug detection dogs, arrests, charges, sanctions, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And we also about ask about drug purchases as well. Yeah. So 
the impact of drug laws isn't just you know what police can do do to you for example um as a result of um drugs being controlled under criminal law but the kinds of experiences that you can have as a result of making a purchase of a drug that is not um, legal and therefore um, the content of it is uncertain. So we ask about whether people, when they have made their purchases, have ever um, experienced poor quality, been ripped off, been threatened, harassed, or experienced any kind of violence that sort of thing. And then kind of thinking about being in public as well, going into festivals or clubs or bars, surveillance, security there, sniffer dogs. So really yeah. looking at the impact of uh, of the law and policy and not just, not just, as you say, about those direct kind of police encounters, but other things as well. Anything else you want to talk about? I, I would like to say that I'm really excited about this, um, this module of the Global Drug Survey, because I think it's going to deliver really interesting information about people's per experiences of drug policy currently and their drug policy preferences in a way that we maybe haven't seen before. So we're all looking forward to it. But thank you so much, Judith, for being part of the podcast today. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you, Rebecca. So we round up this episode by going back to Adam, who speaks about who's eligible to take part and how long the survey will take to complete. So just kind of finally, like, who's eligible to take part and how long does it take to, to complete the survey? So you're eligible to take part if you're over 16 and if you have ever smoked a cigarette, had a drink, had a prescription medication like a benzo or an opiate or used any form of illicit drug, including cannabis. And it may surprise a lot of people. A third of our respondents have never used an illicit drug. And actually this year, more than ever, we want to hear from people who haven't used illicit drugs because we want to know why. Yeah, in terms of how long it takes, I think GDS is basically a drug tax where if you've used lots of drugs in the last year, it is going to take you longer. This year, I reckon for most people, it's going to be 20 minutes. I think for some people, it'll be 10. I think if you've had a um, if you've had a big year and you have maybe used lots of different drugs and you are interested in sex and psychedelics and maybe you've done mescaline or maybe you've ever bought kind of illicit tobacco, it might take you half an hour. But you don't have to do it all at once. There's a nice little kind of save and return button. So, yeah, you know, make yourself a cup of tea and look at it as a chance to reflect on all the things that you've done over the last year. So um, it will be on the front page of the Global Drug Survey. So www.globaldrugsurvey.com. It'll probably run for a couple of months. And I would ask anyone who's interested to share the crap out of it on whatever your preferred social media platform is. And if you've got a particular interest, like if you represent a, a particular group, then please contact me. Well, thank you so much, Adam. It's been an absolute delight to speak to you. And yes, everybody, please do fill in the Global Drug Survey. Take your time with it. And yes, please do share on all social media. We're very much looking forward to your responses. Thank you, Adam. Thank you so much, Rebecca. We've reached the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. We'd like to credit and thank Anna Duffy at A Duffy Design for our logo and branding. This podcast was produced by Neil Scott. <laughs> <laughs>